Good morning. Charles Osgood is off today. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. For baseball fans, it's a welcome sound of summer, the crack of the bat solidly hitting the ball. For some batters, however, that sound needs to be preceded by another, the sound of the incoming ball itself. They are lovers of the game who, of necessity, must play it by ear, as Mark Strassman will report in our cover story. It's the first lesson of baseball. Keep your eye on the ball. But what if you can't see the ball? Can't see anything. When you're on the field, tell me how you play. I mean, it, it seems very instinctive. My ears become my eyes. Simple as that. The Beep Baseball World Series. It'll open your eyes later on Sunday morning. Two real characters won a double handful of Emmy nominations this past week. With John Blackstone this morning, we'll be hearing questions and answers with Key and Peele. Crazy, crazy does. For comedians Keegan-Michael Key and Jordan Peele, this man in the White House has changed everything. What has my administration accomplished? Did we accomplish killing America's biggest enemy? Uh, check, did that, boom! Significant for you to have a man elected president who has a white mother and a black father? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure we'd have a show if he hadn't been elected president. The transformative comedy of Key and Peele coming up on Sunday morning. Don't change the channel. Spam is a brand name food that doesn't always get a lot of respect, except that is in the spot our Lee Cowan will be taking us to. Go ahead and laugh. Spam is used to it. Besides, it has plenty of fans in a place you're probably dying to visit. Hawaii. That's right. The islands are a Spamaholic's paradise. Is this pretty much the most popular aisle? This is what everybody comes for whenever it's on sale. What do you need in your kitchen cupboard? Hawaii's aloha spirit in a can. Later on Sunday morning. Martha Teichner shows us works by the great painter, J.M.W. Turner. Steve Hartman meets some students who've unearthed a real touchstone. We'll watch a woman confront her fear of frying. And more. Ahead. Steve Hartman meets some rock stars. But first, playing it by ear. Yeah! Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. With the help of this beeping ball, a host of unlikely-seeming baseball lovers are able to play it by ear and show the rest of us what determination and skill can really do. Our cover story is reported by Mark Strassman. You might think a 33-year-old father of four playing in a baseball league is just a guy trying to relive his youth. And in Brandon Chesser's case, you'd be right. Sports were Brandon's life as a kid growing up in Texas. Little did he know then, sports would be what saved his life. It all started when he was eight. I was standing in right field during a baseball game and there was a ball hit, and it was hit directly to me, 
but I never knew it was out there. Everything beyond 10 feet was a blur. I wound up crying in the dugout because I, I kept telling my mom, I, I can't see him, I can't see him. Brandon was diagnosed with retinitis pigmentosa, a degenerative eye disease. His vision loss was gradual. In high school, he could still read textbooks and even played varsity football. But by his early 20s, Brandon could hardly see. Everything past three feet was a kaleidoscope, and everything between my nose and three feet were blurred shapes. Must have been hard to take. It was very hard. I couldn't compete on an athletic level anymore. Well, I felt that way, and I didn't know what to do in my life. I didn't know which direction to turn. But in 2006, life began looking up. He met his future wife, Pam. She's also blind. And on their first date, Brandon told her about his childhood love of sports. And she told him about the Austin Blackhawks and beat baseball. Baseball for the blind. Amazing to watch, but imagine playing, unable to see anything. Some players have partial sight, others none at all. They all wear blindfolds so that no one has an edge. But because everyone can hear, the ball and the bases all make a beeping sound. Well, just as soon as the blindfold goes on, I make the transition. My ears become my eyes. Simple as that. Lupe Perez was born blind. Think about it. He has never actually seen a baseball game. But Perez started playing in 1990 and is now considered one of the sport's all-time greats. What's your favorite part of this? Winning. Winning. Yeah. Just like any other athlete, you want to win. Beep Baseball began 40 years ago. A telephone engineer named Charles Fairbanks created a ball slightly larger than a softball that beeped. Inside of this uh, silicone structure, is, uh, is an old telephone speaker and batteries with a beeper module. Runs out three. Today, more than two dozen teams compete in the U.S., Taiwan, and the Dominican Republic, using rules adapted for blind athletes. There are only two bases, first and third, each marked by a padded pylon. When a batter hits a fair ball, a random beep tells him which base to run to. If he touches the base before a fielder gets hold of the beeping ball, it's a run. If not, it's an out. In this game, the pitcher, the only player who can see, is on the same team as the batter. The pitcher calls, get ready. And the batter listens for the beep and times the swing. Kevin Sibson has pitched for the Austin Blackhawks for 30 years, ever since he founded the team with his brother Wayne, who is blind. I know what you do for them. What do they do for you? There was a synergy between the batter and the pitcher that's, um, it's like nothing else in sports. I mean, there really is a trust relationship in all of this. Yep, that's why we call ourselves a family. It's because we're closer than a team. We trust one another. We have faith in one another. For people who would watch this and say, oh, that's nice, some blind people are playing a game, how competitive 
is this for people who have never seen it before? You're talking about grown men and women playing a sport where they'll do anything to get that championship title. Last August, Brandon and the Blackhawks, along with 19 other teams, traveled to Rochester, Minnesota for the 38th annual Beat Baseball World Series. The Blackhawks swept their first five games. One more team to beat, an Indianapolis powerhouse, the RHI Extreme. By the last inning, Austin led 14 to eight. Full count, last pitch of the game. Unless Nick puts it in play and hits it. it off. He hits a hard ball, first base side. Gets past the first guy, second guy. Third guy's after it. He's got the end. Wow. Brandon Chesser caught the final out. The Austin Blackhawks saw themselves for who they were, world champions. Oh, nothing could feel that good ever again. For the folks who watch this story, is there a message from this team to the sighted world about possibility in all this? Don't let anybody ever tell you you can't do that. And I've always been told you can't do that because I'm blind. You know what? I've stepped over everyone and now I'm a world champion, even though I'm blind. Coming up. V is for victory. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. And now a page from our Sunday morning almanac, July 19th, 1941. 74 years ago today. A red-letter day in the war against Nazi Germany. This is London. For it was late that evening that a BBC announcer read a message from Prime Minister Winston Churchill urging the people of Britain to use two extended fingers to form a V for victory sign. This is Colonel Britain speaking. All over Europe, the V sign is seen by the Germans. According to a follow-up BBC broadcast one week later, the hand signal as well as the letter V itself, were already being used by the underground resistance in occupied Europe. They see it chalked on the pavements, penciled on posters, scratched on the mudguards of German cars. Nor was that all. The man calling himself Colonel Britton went on to demonstrate the sound of the letter V in Morse code. And here's the letter V, the sign of victory in Morse. Three short knocks and one long. And he urged listeners to use it whenever they could. If you call a waiter in a restaurant, call him like this. Hey, garçon. Newsreels picked up on the V for Victory theme. Playing up the resemblance between the Morse code V and the first four notes of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. The Nazi patrols have tried everything, principally violence. But everywhere they hear Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, the musical three dots and a dash. 
from the hand signal to costume jewelry. The V sign was a huge morale booster for all those on the Allied side, straight through to 1945, and VE Day, victory in Europe, and then VJ Day, victory over Japan. Today, the V sign is still often used to celebrate triumph, though we suspect only rarely in its audio form to summon a waiter. Next. His later work was met with scathing reaction. Ahead of his time, the paintings of J.M.W. Turner. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Our first impressions of people and things don't always hold up well. Consider how the British art world first reacted to the paintings of J.M.W. Turner. Martha Teichner guides us through his life and works. Grazie. Prego. <laughs> J.M.W. Turner loved showing off. Let everything be to your satisfaction, Mr. Turner. There's a splendid cornucopia. Cornucopia. The recent film, Mr. Turner, captures his famous habit of sweeping into London's Royal Academy on what were called varnishing days, when painters put finishing touches on their submissions for the annual show. Why on earth would he go and do that? He's ruined a masterpiece. Then, ignoring taunts, with a single theatrical flourish. It's a boy. It's a boy. He would demonstrate the genius that made him possibly Britain's greatest painter ever. Once I started to investigate Turner, the personality, complex, contradictory, eccentric personality, and then related that to these extraordinary, sublime paintings, I just felt, you know, there was a, there was a film in it. Mike Lee wrote and directed Mr. Turner. Research Turner, and he is an enigma. He's a bundle of contradictions. Joseph Mallard William Turner was a cockney and never tried to hide it, even around his posh patrons. His father was a barber. His mother died in an insane asylum. At the age of 24, in 1799, he painted this self-portrait. But it was his landscapes which made him famous and rich. Landscapes and seascapes that in the last years of his life especially were as radical, as intense and strange as the man himself. This is the most extraordinary depiction of a storm. Turner's contemporaries would never have seen a painting like this before. It's a blur. And that's the power of it. Julian Brooks of the J. Paul Getty Museum is co-curator of a Turner exhibition, now at the de Young Museum in San Francisco. You have a steamboat in the middle of the storm. You see the paddle steamer here. And that's significant in and of itself, that it's a steamboat? Absolutely. And sort of crucial because, you know, steam power was the invincible new technology. But Turner, instead of sort of celebrating the technology, he makes it clear that the boat is nothing compared to the power of the, the sea. This is the painting that Turner, he said, well, I wanted to see the storm from, from on the ship, and I asked the sailors to tie me to the mast. Um, for Turner, it's a lot about feeling and not just describing something. So his Venice was dreamy, 
flooded with sunlight. Turner transformed Venice into this sort of magical, ghostly city. It's all about atmosphere and about effects of light and water and the way the two work together. His technique could be breathtakingly delicate or just as breathtakingly unconventional as the film shows. Mr. Turner seems to have taken leave of form altogether. The critics had a field day. His later work was met with scathing reaction from all kinds of people, including Queen Victoria. <laughs> By the time he reached 60 in 1835, Turner didn't care what people thought. He was considered odd and secretive. He never married, but apparently fathered two daughters. And for years, he lived a double life. On his many painting and sketching expeditions to the seaside town of Margate, he repeatedly rented a room with a view from Sophia Booth. They lived together as lovers after her husband died. None of the neighbors knew who he was. Who did they think he was? They thought he was a retired seaman, Admiral Booth. They called him a nickname, Puggy Booth. This painting of a castle in England at sunrise was one of nearly 200 works found in Turner's studio when he died in 1851 at 76. Then it would have seemed unfinished, confusing. But to modernize, it's been an inspiration to artists ever since. All the forms are abstracted into just color and light. This is a touchstone from Turner's late work that, that contemporary artists and artists after him look to. Why isn't this considered Impressionism? I mean, it, it is in a way. I mean, it's Impressionism before Impressionism came into being. Turner had no doubt that he was the great British painter of his time. He turned down a collector who offered to buy everything in his home gallery, saying he intended his work to be a gift to the British nation. The self-indulgent act of a huge ego? Maybe. But the collection is now considered a priceless treasure. History has judged that Turner was right. Still to come. Quiznetard business. University of Tennessee. Capage Poopsie. Fun in the Sun with Key and Peel. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Protecting our democracy is more important than ever. For example, the Supreme Court ruled that the donor who gave Ted Cruz $6 million was just exercising free speech. Yeah, it's the kind of speech like this. I just wasted $6 million. <laughs> it's Sunday morning on CBS. And here again is Jane Pauley. That's Keegan-Michael Key playing President Obama's anger translator, Luther, at this year's White House Correspondents' Dinner. Luther is just one of the real characters Key and comic partner Jordan Peele portray on television, creations that helped them win a total of eight Emmy nominations this past week. John Blackstone sat down with them for some questions and answers. 
On their Comedy Central TV show, Key and Peele transformed themselves into hundreds of unpredictable characters. Chris Natan Business, University of Tennessee. Capesh Like the college football players with the exceptional names. Tom Royal Smoochie Wallace, University of Miami. Desquarius Green Jr., University of Notre Dame. That's stupid, man. Don't do that, man. Come on. Or the extremely knowledgeable on, movie hecklers. Do not go into a crane shot right now. You kidding me? Yeah, man. Hell, y'all, this movie's got an inconsistent visual language. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, in their fifth season, Key and Peele are getting the attention that fans and critics have felt they've long deserved. Where is A.A. Ron right now? Sketches from their TV show posted online have made them hugely popular on the Internet. You know, I'm just asking, you know, I said it like four times, so why didn't you say it the first time I said A-A-Ron? Because it's pronounced Aaron? Son of a bitch! Last year, they were named to Time's 100 Most Influential People list and also featured on the cover of the magazine's Ideas issue. This is overwhelming, it really is. And they won a prestigious Peabody Award, honoring programming excellence. Trust me, it's an honor. Mistake or otherwise, we weren't vying for a Peabody. So this has been one of the most pleasant surprises of my life. Like, since I got that bike when I was eight. You know, people don't know our names. Who's Keegan? Who's Jordan? Just this past year, there's been a difference. We feel very lucky. So this is Key, Keegan-Michael Key, married, 44 years old, from Detroit. And this is Peel, Jordan Peel, single, 36 years old, from New York City. They first met at a sketch comedy club in Chicago, then worked together on Mad TV, creating comedy built on surprise. We love to use an audience's expectations yes, against absolutely. them. absolutely. We have lot A, lot B, and lot C. Uh, $3 on lot A. $4. Five. Who would expect a slave auction sold lot a goes to as the a subject for sketch comedy? I think our intention was that people go, oh, I'm not going to be able to laugh at this because this deals with an atrocity. I mean, good. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't get sold because mm. I don't want to be owned by another human being. And then we use the we use judo, or try to. Two dollars on lot A. Two dollars going once, twice, three times sold. See now that surprises me. That is to make it a scene that is not exploiting the issue of slavery, but it's really examining these characters. Next. Oh, oh here we go. Here we go. It's a, a scene about vanity that happens to be in the framework of slavery. And then you go, oh, they go, okay. Oh, oh, I I, they actually made me laugh yeah. with this. Eight dollars on lot A. Go once, twice, three times sold. How does that nope, happen? Not true. What How you does just it said, happen? That's gobbledygook. Okay, that can't be true. Because what can Look this dude do? Look at him. What could he pick? A cotton plant is like this tall. Yes. I'm saying, no offense, brother. I'm just saying. Offense taken. You don't want to just change the way people think about comedy, though. You want to change the way they think about race. I think. We, we view comedy as transformative. If you, if you laugh at something, it's because you've uh, ha- had some sort of cathartic moment. We have a perspective that hasn't been explored. So that's an easy place for us to go and say, okay, well, how does, how does a, a mixed person deal with something like this? A mixed person, as in 
biracial. Your mother's white. My mom's white. His father was African American. Key too was born to a white mother and black father, then adopted by a white mother and black father. At junior high, other kids did not understand. So they say mean, harsh things like, "Man, you would lie, man. That ain't your mom." Quit playing, dude. Quit playing. That ain't your mom. And then here I am in class weeping, going, it's my mom. You, you, you know, th that discovery comes and you start to go, oh my gosh, what a drag. I didn't know I had to pick sides. That's the problem. You don't, they just throw the pieces down there and walk away. And no one ever told you it's a bunch of pieces to two different puzzles. And then you meet someone like this who wants to facilitate what you want to do. How lucky that this meeting of minds and backgrounds occurred during the Obama years. Significant for you to have a man elected president who has a white mother and a black father? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure we'd have a show if he hadn't been elected president. I just want to say that I know a lot of people out there seem to think that uh, I don't get angry. That's just not true. I get angry a lot. And it's possible that only Key and Peel could have created a presidential aide named Luther. So, just so there's no more confusion, we've hired Luther here to be my anger translator. Luther? Hi. If there was just a surrogate, if there was just someone who could express Obama's frustration or anger... Concerning the recent developments in the Middle Eastern region... Because he can't do it. Hey, all y'all dictators out there, keep messing around and see what happens. Just see what happens. Watch! Couldn't there be someone to stand at his side to be his emotional valve? What has my administration accomplished? Did we accomplish killing America's biggest enemy? A uh, check did that. Boom! Three years ago, boom. Key and Peel met the president they'd been playing for laughs. He's cool. He's super, He's cool. That's super it. cool. Mm -hmm. He came in and got straight up, he just went bro, bro hugs, like walked bro right hugs. up to us. Just and got in got there and got in uh, there. And then what he's... He goes, I, I need Luther. <laughs> I need him. You know, so he, he just, which was the which best was thing for the us. The confirmation we, that what we were doing was resonating with the one person that we never in our wildest dreams thought it would resonate with. And that's why I invited Luther, my anger translator, to join me here tonight. It resonated enough that guess who came to this year's White House Press Corps dinner? The nonstop focus on billionaire donors creates real problems for our democracy. And that's why we're running for a third term! No, 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 we're not. We're not? No. Who the hell said that? Key and Peele's upcoming agenda includes a remake of the Police Academy franchise. Also, writing a screenplay with Judd Apatow. Why everybody messing with the Batman? Remember when Danny DeVito's tried it? Walking around, talking about it. And for their TV show. Stop being such a Producing more sketches filled with unexpected comedy. If we can get away doing comedy that has nothing to do with race, that's almost the most progressive statement we could make. We're going to play Italian mobsters. We're going to play 17th century uh, French fops, uh, two uh, English anthropologists talking about their travels up and down the Amazon. Not to sound antagonistic, but d deal with it. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Okay, copy that. We're in lock with telemetry with the spacecraft. It happened this past week. 
our first good look at Pluto. We have ignition and liftoff of NASA's... It was exactly nine and a half years ago today that NASA's New Horizons spacecraft lifted off on its three billion mile journey. Since its chance discovery in 1930, Pluto has always been just a blur on the telescope until New Horizons started sending back its close-up pictures. For the first time, we're seeing vast, empty plains, which appear to be only 100 million years old at the most. We're seeing mountain ranges some 10,000 feet high. And smack in the middle of Pluto's southern hemisphere, we see a huge area shaped like a heart. Astronomers are already attaching names to some of these newly found features, including the heart, which they're calling the Tombaugh Regio, Latin for region. It's named after Clyde Tombaugh, the astronomer who first spotted Pluto all those years ago. What none of the astronomers are calling Pluto, however, is a planet. It was officially and controversially downgraded to dwarf planet status in 2006. And in an online appearance with incoming Late Show host Stephen Colbert this past week, Hayden Planetarium Director Neil deGrasse Tyson defended that demotion. It's not even on my tie, okay? I got Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune. That's it, okay? That's the standard. (laughs) If it's not on a casual accessory owned by Neil deGrasse Tyson, not worth knowing. Forget it. Forget it. Who cares? Still, Neil deGrasse Tyson is calling Pluto the king of the Kuiper Belt, a band of strange icy objects at the solar system's far reaches. And it is deeper into that belt that the New Horizons spacecraft is headed next. Next. Spam, 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 spam. How about a little spam? Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. How does spam strike you as a Sunday brunch entree? Lee Cowan has been to a spot where that idea would go down easy. There is hardly a more maligned meat than Spam. Spam, 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 Spam. Hormel's new miracle meat in a can. But if you think it's just a culinary punchline, you haven't spent enough time here. The Hawaiian Islands, known for their trade winds and rainbows, are also a Spamaholics paradise. In fact, no state eats more. So it's a staple. Everybody eats it here. How are we doing today? On the island of Kauai, at the Foodland grocery store that Orlando Dutut manages, Spam is as plentiful as sunblock. I can't believe how many different varieties you have. This is amazing. It's a rainbow of Spam. I know. 14 flavors. (laughs) 14? 14 varieties, yeah. There's Spam with cheese, Spam with garlic, with turkey and jalapeno. And nothing says aloha quite like Spam-flavored macadamia nuts. In fact, the taste of Spam is so popular in Hawaii, you can even order it at McDonald's. We call it Hawaiian prime rib or Hawaiian roast beef. (laughs) 
Hawaii's love of all things spam started during World War II. Millions of pounds of the stuff were shipped to GIs in the South Pacific, largely because it didn't spoil in the tropical sun. But when the servicemen left, the spam stayed and just became part of the island diet. By far the favorite local dish is what's called a spam musubi. It looks a bit like sushi. Robert Kubota's grandmother taught him how to make it the island way. It's like Asian culture, Western culture, you know, everything was mixed up, you know, put it all together, wrap it in naughty, and here you go. Spam has even entered the kitchens of the touristy restaurants, like Tiki and Iki, where ordering the Spam burger has become as daring as the owner's blue hairdo. So what do the tourists think? Most people say that's the best burger they've ever had. Or, yes. oh my God, it was good, it was amazing. You know, the cocktails have a lot to do with it as well. Yeah. <laughs> Mixing Spam in with the ground beef was Michelle's husband's idea, music legend Todd Rundgren. Rundgren says he wrote that, and plenty of others, while eating plenty of Spam. He has been eating Spam since he was little. Really? No worse than a hot dog. No, no it's not. It's, it's way better, better than a hot dog. It doesn't have any snouts or anuses in it, as far as I know. <laughs> you can't but... say that on TV. You yes, can't you can. say that. The good folks at Hormel Foods, an ocean away in Chile, Austin, Minnesota, tell us that Spam is mostly pork shoulder and salt, and not much else. Spam is cooked in its own can. They rattle through the plant at an astonishing pace. Donnie Temperley is vice president of Hormel's grocery products division. How many cans are coming off here every day? We're running about 395 cans a minute, so we've created a real spam highway right here next to us. <laughs> Since its invention in 1937, Hormel has sold 8 billion cans. Spam is the meat that you should buy. Spam is different, and here is why. But marketing the food with the quirky name has always been a curious challenge. At first, Spam was touted for its canned convenience. Fabulous to eat, taste the pork and taste the ham in Spam. Then, for its versatility. You don't say ham, you say Spam. Spam is real spiced ham. But it was Monty Python. Spam, Spam, Spam is in Spam who did more for Spam than perhaps any commercial ever could. Could I have egg, bacon, Spam and sausage without the Spam? Yeah. What do you mean? Uh, I don't like Spam! Spam's marketing director, Nicole Bainey, says Spam's kitsch may be its best-selling point. People make up love songs about Spam. We have a fan that actually created a rocket out of Spam cans. People make musical instruments out of Spam. So there's a lot of fun that's had out there with our brand. Not everything's funny. Hormel wasn't laughing when Spam officially entered the dictionary as a word to define unwanted emails. And we're excited about it. But Hormel's CEO, Jeff Ettinger, says the company realized that having a sense of humor about its flagship product was really the only way to go. I think maybe our, our low moment with it was when we decided to sue the Muppets. Be, uh, there, was a, there was a movie they put out. I am Spam. That had a Spam character that was an evil character. And I think that was kind of a turning point to say, you know, we, I guess we really need to be with the joke. This seemingly indestructible meat has been matched by its indestructible image. It's fed armies. It's helped America through recessions and has endured 
as a true slice of Americana. In the blue and yellow pan. Coming up, it's evolved into something that we never could have imagined. Like a rock. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. It's a rare day when you encounter a trio of genuine rock stars, the sort of day our Steve Hartman recently had. During last month's assembly at Kittredge Elementary in North Andover, Massachusetts, Girls and boys. the school honored three former students for their contribution to Kittredge. The former students are Alex Gamble, Kira Brown, and Celia DeSalvo. They all just graduated from high school, but the present they left behind when they were here is still all anyone can talk about. The kids started working on this gift unwittingly. It was 10 years ago. They were in second grade and out here on the playground during recess when one of them saw this little rock, or what looked like a little rock, sticking up out of the ground. So we kind of thought, we were like, oh, we should just like, we found some sticks, we're like, oh, let's just dig this out of the ground. They were out there every recess. Richard Cushing was principal during much of the excavation. And I have to tell you, their hearts were broken when, when the first frost appeared, you know, because they had to stop. But year after year, they returned to the project, digging mostly with sticks and plastic spoons they got from the cafeteria. The kids dug down through second grade, third grade, fourth and fifth, until finally, just before moving on to middle school, they finished. The principal brought in heavy equipment to lift it out of the hole for them. That was 2008. And now, these three are like rock stars around here. It was just in the ground, sticking out a little bit. Partly because of the accomplishment itself. Try digging out something like that with just a plastic spoon. But mostly, for what the rock has become. It's evolved into something that we never could have imagined. Today, some kids say this rock has the magical power of making friends. It's a beacon to some of the students out there who get picked on. And they, like, go and sit on the rock, and, like, by the end of recess, someone will go sit with them. I waited there, and then eventually some kids came, and that changed my life forever. Walter Wanyueke is a firm believer in the power of the rock. When I made those friends, it felt magical. I thought I would just sit there alone on recess. Then friends came by. I never thought that would happen. This is an amazing rock. Mm-hmm, it is. You'll never forget that rock? No. Not as long as I live. When those three started digging, they say they used to wonder if one day they would eventually uncover a buried treasure of infinite value. And now we know. They did. I had a short take. She was afraid of frying food. <laughs> Facing her fears. It's boiling oil. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Nyctophobia. It's the clinical name for fear of the dark. And to kick off an occasional series, we have a short take on a woman confronting her deepest 100 fears in 100 days. Holding the tarantula was one of my biggest fears. My heart was pounding really, really, really fast and hard and loud, but it started to feel so nice. Oh my God. It was really surprising for me. 
My name is Michelle Poehler and I have 100 ways of facing fear. I grew up in Venezuela and I had a lot of fears growing up. So the idea of going on a trapeze, it's terrifying, but I'm here to face that fear, so let's do it. Welcome to Circus Warehouse. So we're gonna start on the low bar, it's just a series of kicks. Legs long and kick forward and back. Forward and back, don't bend the knees. The reason why I thought of a trapeze is because it looks pretty dangerous and high. Scared? Yes, very scared. Great, let's do it. <laughs> a few months ago, I gave my students an assignment. The assignment is called the 100 Days Project. I'm Debbie Millman, and I'm co-founder and leader of the Masters in Branding program at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. The students spend 100 days doing one thing again and again and again for 100 days. They decide what the topic is. What are the things that everyone cares about? What are the things that everyone can relate to? What are the things that everybody hopes for? Michelle decided to spend 100 days exploring and conquering her fears. 100 days. When Debbie gave us the assignment, I knew I had to do something that would change my life. This comes once in a lifetime. The snake was freaking out. I was walking through Columbus Circle, and I see the guy with the snake on the shoulders, and he go, approached me, and he's like, you should take the snake. And I was like, this is God telling me I have to face this fear. I did not move. I was not enjoying that moment, and I was just praying God the whole time. Michelle and I have been married for four years. Michelle has a lot of fears that's been keeping her from enjoying life to the fullest. For example, she was afraid of frying food. <laughs> Frying food scares me because it's boiling oil. I was terrified of the oil coming out of the um, pan and getting to my skin. I'm always trying to push her to the limit, push her to try new stuff, push her to do new stuff, and it's just been really hard, so I thank God for this project. Eating insects was crazy, but I invited my husband. Oh my God and that was her lovely dinner for the night. And he joined me. He was even more scared than I was. Okay. It was crunchy, it was salty. Mm. It wasn't that bad, but no, bad. the moment that I was getting it to my mouth was terrifying. Oh my God. Oh, it's more scarier than I thought it was going to be. Good. Good. Oh my God, that was amazing. Pretty, pretty, pretty scary. Scarier than what I thought it was going to be. Being up there doesn't look so high from here. From there, it looks extremely high. What I really believe that Michelle is experiencing is tapping into her inner strength that was there all along. This isn't magic. She hasn't woken up every day for the last however many days and said, I'm going to turn into someone that I wasn't before. What she's actually doing is recognizing her own power and her own strength. When I was out there, I was thinking I was going to die and I'd rather jump out of a plane like I did. They opened the door and the first thing that came through my mind is, I cannot believe I'm going to jump off a plane. It's like committing suicide. I kept saying, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, but I was really very eager to jump and understand how the feeling was. And definitely was one of the best moments of my life. It was amazing. 
I don't feel I've eliminated all of my fears. I'm not there yet, but I have my whole life ahead of me. And at least this project gave me the confidence to approach the fears. So I did it. I think anyone can face their fears and enjoy every day to the fullest. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. The New York Times today released excerpts of a lawsuit deposition Bill Cosby gave under oath a decade ago. In it, Cosby admits he offered money to women after having sex with them. And he says he hid the payments and his behavior from his wife. So what to make of all this? Thoughts now from author and actor Joseph Phillips, who once appeared on The Cosby Show. Legendary basketball coach John Wooden was often quoted speaking about the importance of character. Be more concerned with your character, Wooden said, because your character is what you really are, while your reputation is merely what others think you are. When we idolize men based on their reputations, we open ourselves up for disappointment when their character flaws are exposed. It's nothing new. It happens all the time. We love a ball player because of his feats on the field, and then we discover that he gambled on games. We admire a president and then discover that he's a chronic liar and a cheat. Well, that's all right with you, Dad. We work for America's dad, and then he's accused of being a serial rapist. If the allegations against Bill Cosby are true, which I believe them to be, then Bill Cosby is a man with a tremendously flawed character who enjoyed a stellar reputation. But Bill Cosby is also more than that, isn't he? You're talking about equality and fairness and all that, y'all. In spite of his flawed character, Bill Cosby was a brilliant comic and actor, a philanthropist, a patron of the fine arts, a teacher, a man concerned with educating children, a warrior for civil rights. The good works that bolstered his reputation created a legacy, the Bill Cosby legacy. So if a man nurtures his reputation by doing public good, what becomes of those works when his true character is revealed and he suffers the inevitable fall from grace? Do we simply discard a man's brilliance, his philanthropy, his wisdom and humanitarianism? How much of that legacy are we allowed to celebrate? For some, the answer is zero. The gravity of his acts demand that his legacy be tossed into the trash bin of history. For others, the value of his works outweighs his character flaws. His legacy is paramount and must be jealously guarded. And still for others, like myself, there is a struggle to reconcile the dissonance, an attempt to condemn the behavior on one hand while preserving what was good and of value on the other. It's a difficult balancing act to be certain, and it may be that none of us has the moral equilibrium to pull it off. Behaviors carry consequences, and watching your legacy crumble before your eyes is clearly one consequence. Civil or legal consequences may follow, but the one thing for certain is that the Cosby legacy will be determined by the character Bill Cosby demonstrates now, in this moment. His reputation no longer matters. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. The people of Chattanooga continue to mourn the four Marines and the sailor killed in Thursday's shootings. And the family of the gunman behind the attack has broken its silence. Jerika Duncan has filed this Sunday journal. A fifth cross was put in the ground yesterday at this makeshift memorial site to mark the death of sailor Randall Smith, shot three times during Thursday's rampage. 
Hundreds came to visit, including the family of one of the victims, Staff Sergeant David Wyatt. Wyatt's father, Alan, says his son died after helping several others escape. They uh, were able to get um, 18 people uh, away over the fence and then they counted and there were two missing. And uh, my son, Sergeant Wyatt, and Gunnery Sergeant Sullivan went back to look for the other two, uh, whereupon they ran into the shooter and uh, were fired upon and killed. Beyond the flowers and flags, you could see the FBI gathering evidence. Investigators are also looking for clues into what might have motivated the shooter, Mohammed Youssef Abdulaziz. They are focusing on several trips he took overseas, especially a seven-month visit to Jordan last year. Officials caution it's too early to say if he was inspired by ISIS or other terror groups. Late last night, the Abdulaziz family expressed their condolences to all the victims. There are no words to describe our shock, horror, and grief. The person who committed this horrible crime was not the son we knew and loved. For many years, our son suffered from depression. A complicated picture is beginning to emerge of Abdulaziz. In his high school yearbook, he noted that his name causes national security alerts. In 2013, he lost his job at an Ohio power plant, and this past April, he was pulled over for driving under the influence. Friends say he told them he was at a firing range recently, and in a blog post attributed to Abdulaziz, written just three days before the shootings, the author encourages readers to submit to Allah. CBS News National Security Analyst Juan Zarate. One of the scary and dangerous dimensions of this case is the fact that perhaps we couldn't have done more to prevent the attack. And I think that's really the danger of these kinds of potential lone wolf cases. Hour by hour, this tribute continues to grow. Chattanooga is still coming to grips with the shootings. Many here, like Cassandra Daniels, say they're relying on faith to see them through. We as a people united as human beings on this planet must learn to love and understand each other. Alan Wyatt understands what his son did here had a purpose. I'm uh, extremely proud of my son, <clears throat> of uh, all of the, the men who died there. Um, when things did start to happen, they stepped up and did their job like they were trained to do. I'm Jane Pauley. Please join us here again next Sunday morning.